0: BLOB TALK RADIO BLOB TALK
1: RADIO Good evening, and blessings,
0: and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly
1: live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and Hello, and welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom is Still Faith. I'm your host, Ilyasa Shabazz, and I'm dedicated to preserving the legacy of Malcolm X, Dr. Betty Shabazz, and countless others upon whose shoulders we all stand today. At The Gist of Freedom is Still Faith, we aim to empower our listeners with dignity and self-respect as we've taken an oath to empower at least One Child. This show is co-produced by acclaimed educator and author, Ms. Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white. Here, we salute those committed to preserving a rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. So come on and gather your family, friends, and students to listen online at blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com We thank you for joining us this evening and we'd love for you to be a part of our discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552 That's 347-324-5552
0: Recorded Books Incorporated presents an unabridged recording of Breaking the Chains African American Slave Resistance by William Lauren Katz. Narrated by Peter Francis James. The Fiery Abolitionists David Walker was a slim, six-foot black man who made his living running a second-hand clothing store on Brattle Street in Boston. His life's goal was to unite African Americans and overthrow slavery. His radical views fired people with hope and expectation and made slaveholders furious. In a few short years, the young African American changed the debate over slavery. In the 1820s, no one more brilliantly and sharply voiced the anguish and aspirations that more than two million slaves shared with their 320,000 free brothers and sisters. Walker knew from his own family that slave and free were as close as husband and wife, He was born in 1785 in Wilmington, North Carolina, to a free black woman married to a slave. His father died before David was born. Slaveholder rules assigned the mother's status to the child, so Walker was born free. In his late thirties, Walker said farewell to his mother and began to travel. Soon he left the South. If I remain in this bloody land... I will not live long, he said. I cannot remain where I must hear the chains. By the time he arrived in Boston in 1827, he had a purpose. As true as God reigns, I will be avenged for the sorrows which my people have suffered. At 40, he taught himself to read and write and then began to study history. His consuming interest was the European enslavement of his fellow Africans. In 1827, Freedom's Journal, America's first black newspaper appeared, and Walker contributed articles and became its Boston distributor. He also attended community meetings and helped runaways reach freedom. He married a woman, probably a fugitive slave, and they hoped to have a child. The next year in a public lecture, he asked his people Ought we not to protect, aid, and assist each other to the utmost of our power? His answer was a lengthy Appeal to the Slaves of the United States, published in 1829. Wide-ranging, fiercely militant, and unequivocal in tone, it drew inspiration from his deeply held Christian beliefs and the recent democratic spirit that had swept through America, France, and Haiti. Whites enslaved blacks out of greed, Walker argued. But God had ordained freedom. He will send you a Hannibal as leader. He condemned the U.S. government, northern discrimination, and advised his people to prepare to govern ourselves. At times, Walker said, white hearts were so hardened that they would not repent or apologize. But other times he voiced some hope, "'that slavery could peacefully be ended. "'Treat us like men, "'and we will live in peace and happiness together.'" Walker's booklet rang with passionate threats and warnings. "'I speak, Americans, for your own good. "'We must and shall be free in spite of you.'" To his people, he wrote, "'The entire emancipation of your enslaved brethren "'all over the world depended on unity.'" among African peoples. He wished to avoid bloodshed, but at times he coldly calculated the path forward. Never make an attempt to gain our freedom or natural right from under our cruel oppressors and murderers until you see your way clear. When that hour arrives and you move, be not afraid. If you commence, make sure work. Do not trifle. "'for they will not trifle with you. "'Kill or be killed.' "'He agreed with Jefferson "'that people had the right of revolution. "'Walker's appeal had an electrifying effect in the South, "'where distribution was probably speeded by sailors "'Walker had met through his clothing business. "'In New Orleans, Richmond, and Savannah, "'African-Americans were arrested for owning copies.' Legislatures in Georgia, North Carolina, Mississippi, Virginia, and Louisiana imposed a death penalty on anyone circulating materials encouraging slave rebellion. The governor of North Carolina condemned it as totally subversive and open appeal to natural love of liberty. In Wilmington, Walker's birthplace, authorities reported unrest and plotting among African Americans. The Virginia legislature met in secret session to deal with the appeal. Rewards of $1,000 or more for Walker's capture or death were offered in Georgia. The mayor of Savannah asked the mayor of Boston to arrest Walker. To demonstrate support for his appeal, Boston's African-American community toasted Walker at a dinner. I will stand my ground, he told his friends somebody has to die in this cause. I may be doomed, but it is not in me to falter if I can promote the work of emancipation. On the morning of June 28, 1830, Walker was found dead near his home. His friends believed he had been poisoned. Edward, Walker's son, was born soon after. The white foes of slavery learned from Walker. Originally, Benjamin Lundy, the leading white anti-slavery voice, condemned the appeal as bold, daring, inflammatory. His assistant, William Lloyd Garrison, said it was a disaster for the cause. Before Walker appeared, Lundy, Garrison, and other white leaders had urged caution and moderation. They believed that emancipation must be slow. Owners should be compensated financially for their loss and those freed shipped to Africa. David Walker's bold language changed the argument. By January 1st, 1831, when William Lloyd Garrison began his Liberator, he had rejected his own earlier gradual approach and demanded immediate emancipation without any compensation. His words rang with the indignation of a David Walker. I will not equivocate, I will not excuse, I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be heard. He then launched the American Anti-Slavery Society, which by 1838 claimed 1,346 clubs and a quarter of a million members. It was interracial, militant, and determined. The first U.S. political effort to include women the society counted black and white women among its speakers and workers. They faced northern mobs of respectable citizens who broke up meetings 115 times in the 1830s and 64 times in the 1840s. A former slave who interviewed Walker's wife and reprinted the appeal was Henry Highland Garnett, born in Newmarket, Maryland, in 1815. At nine... Garnet walked, and, when his legs tired, was carried to freedom by his father and uncle. They lived in New York. In 1843, at 27 and just married, Garnet was ordained as a Presbyterian minister. At a black convention in Buffalo that year, he issued a call for the solidarity of free and enslaved African Americans and called on slaves to strike the first blow for freedom. Garnet urged, rather die free men than live to be slaves. He reminded his listeners of the heroism of Denmark Vesey, Nat Turner, Joseph Chinque, and Madison Washington, and concluded, brethren, arise, arise, strike for your lives and liberties. Now is the day and the hour. Let every slave throughout the land do this, and the days of slavery are numbered. When his speech was offered as a resolution, it failed by a single vote in Buffalo. Approving it, some feared, would unleash lynch mobs against black families in southern states. But Garnett issued his Address to the Slaves of the United States that year in a pamphlet that also included Walker's Appeal. Because of Walker's Appeal and Garnett's Address, resistance to slavery became highly organized in black northern communities, Beginning in 1830, annual national conventions were organized by ex-slaves to direct campaigns against slavery and discrimination. By then, 50 black societies were sponsoring protest meetings and issuing publications, including Slave Narratives, that exposed the horrors of slavery to the reading public. The words of Walker and Garnett helped stir militant responses to oppression among African-Americans. From New York to California, the arrest of runaways increasingly triggered community mobilization. In 1833, when Mr. and Mrs. Thornton Blackburn of Detroit were seized as Kentucky slaves, the community sprang into action. A jailhouse visitor secretly changed clothes with Mrs. Blackburn, who walked out of her cell and was ferried to Canada. The sheriff, who returned Mr. Blackburn to slavery, was attacked and his skull fractured. William Lambert and George de Baptiste formed a secret Detroit escape network called African American Mysteries, the Order of the Men of Oppression. The general plan was freedom, explained Lambert, and his determined band arranged passwords and grips and a ritual, but we were always suspicious of the white man, and so those we admitted we put to severe tests. It was fight and run, Danger at every turn, but that we calculated upon and were prepared for, he recalled. In Cass County, Michigan, four fugitives from Kentucky were arrested and brought to South Bend, Indiana. Black and white citizens demanded the posse's arrest, and black residents with clubs and guns massed across from the court. In two days, the four were released and carried off in triumph. On June 3rd, 1847, a Pennsylvania community swung into action. The Carlisle Herald reported, An attempt on the part of a large portion of our colored population to rescue slaves who had been arrested as fugitives. As a man, woman, and young girl were led from the court, people lunged, and a battle ensued in the street. Paving stones were hurled in showers, and clubs and canes used. The woman and girl escaped but the man was taken back to Maryland. That year in Troy, New York, a black national convention recommended instructing sons in the art of war. Black conventions were meeting annually to plan ways to combat slavery and discrimination. In 1850, Congress passed a new fugitive slave law that imposed severe penalties for aiding runaways, denied the accused any right to testify, and required citizens to help catch runaways. Slavery's violence spilled into northern streets. Whites who had believed that slavery would not touch them now faced jail and fines if they refused to follow the commands of slave hunters. Black communities prepared for battle. Former slave, the Reverend Jarmaine Logwin, announced, I don't respect this law. I don't fear it. I won't obey it. It outlaws me, and I outlaw it. Fugitive Lewis Hayden, who hid runaways in his Boston home, announced he had placed two kegs of explosives in his basement and would blow up the house rather than surrender to anyone. In Boston, Cleveland, and Detroit, black vigilance committees expanded to meet the threat, and in Philadelphia, Albany, Syracuse, and New York City, Integrated committees also signed up new members. Cleveland's committee of four women and five men helped 275 escapees in eight months. In Springfield, Massachusetts, an armed League of Gileadites, 44 men and women, mostly black, pledged to arm against slavery and to be firm, determined, and cool, and be hanged if you must. Slave hunters rode into the north, and civilian forces were deployed and ready. In February, in the first case under the new law, Fred Wilkins, a fugitive living in Boston, found he had neighbors willing to help, and Lewis Hayden had organized them. Richard Henry Dana wrote, We heard a shout from the courthouse, as two huge Negroes bearing the prisoner between them with his clothes half torn off, rushed him away, like a black squall, the crowd driving along with them and cheering as they went. In Syracuse, New York, a mixed force of blacks and whites stormed into a courthouse and liberated fugitive Jerry McHenry. William Parker had escaped to Christiana, Pennsylvania and trained a small black army to wage war on slave hunters warned that a federal posse was headed his way to seize two fugitives hiding in his house. Parker and his men loaded their weapons, sang, ''Die on the field of battle, glory in my soul,'' and waited. On the morning of September 11th, Maryland slaveholder Edward Gorsuch, his son, and a U.S. marshal and his deputies arrived at Parker's fortress-like home. When the lawmen called for surrender... Parker and his men laughed. Parker's wife sounded a horn from the second-floor window, and dozens of armed blacks, nobody knows to this day how many, appeared. Gunfire broke out, and when the smoke had cleared, Gorsuch lay dead, his son seriously wounded, and Parker's army and friends were racing to Canada. The U.S. government dispatched 45 marines to Christiana, and tried 36 blacks and two Quakers for treason. All were acquitted. The battle at Christiana announced that African Americans were ready to fight for liberty. In Boston, the arrest of Anthony Burns in 1854 had the Reverend Thomas W. Higginson, a noted reformer, abolitionist, and writer, lead a black and white assault unit on the courthouse. They killed a deputy but were repulsed by overwhelming force. It took 22 U.S. military units to hold back angry, shouting Boston crowds and return burns to the South. These efforts to rescue fugitives in the 1850s drew white support and began to change national thinking. Recalled the Reverend Mr. Higginson, brought up, as we have all been, It takes the whole experience of one such case to educate the mind to the attitude of revolution. He found it so strange to find oneself outside of established institutions, to lower one's voice and hide one's purposes, to see law and order, police and military, on the wrong side, and find good citizenship a sin and bad citizenship a duty. Some clashes were more clever than explosive. In 1853, Lewis, a fugitive on trial in the Cincinnati court, pushed his chair back, then stepped backward. A white abolitionist touched his foot to encourage him, and Lewis kept inching back. He quietly backed around the room, and someone put a hat on his head. When he reached the black section, people crowded around and rushed him through the door. Abolitionists dressed Lewis in women's clothes and hurried him to freedom. At times, abolitionists used both legal and illegal means to rescue fugitives. In May 1857, some fired on a U.S. marshal and posse of ten who tried to break into a Mechanicsburg, Ohio home. The lawmen fled. At nearby Lumberton, another posse was arrested by citizens who charged they were using unnecessary force. A conference between Governor Chase and President Buchanan had to settle the case's complex legal conflicts. In 1858, a black-and-white strike force from Oberlin, Ohio, rescued black fugitive John Price from a posse that included two U.S. Marshals. Of the 37 rescuers arrested, two were tried. One... Charles Langston spoke so strongly about an African-American's right to challenge the new law, I will do all I can for any man thus seized and held, that the judge gave him a minimum sentence. In 1859, Harriet Tubman helped liberate Charles Nall from lawmen in Troy, New York. For half an hour, her black-and-white civilian band battled Nall's captors as she fastened a grip on him and held it, while clubs struck her head. When the male rescuers were wounded, black women, she reported, rushed over their bodies, brought Nall out, and sped him to safety. Some African-American women taken west as slaves sued for freedom in court. In San Jose, California, Mary brought a case in 1846 and won her liberty. In the next decade in Los Angeles, Biddy Mason gained liberty for herself and three daughters with the help of a local sheriff. During a San Francisco dispute over a fugitive, the African-American community raised such a furor that state legislators wanted to register them and ban any future black migration. In 1852, Robert and Polly Holmes, who had gained their freedom, brought suit in Oregon for the liberty of their three children and won the case the Fugitive Slave Law set north against south. It made some northern whites wonder if owners of slaves might be trying to control all of the United States. By sending southern posses racing through the streets of northern cities and towns, slaveholders triggered anger from those who thought they were untouched by, or neutral, about slavery. Insisting the Constitution protected them from being forced into slave-hunting posses, All free state legislatures except New Jersey and California passed personal liberty laws. This legislation represented the first major legal defeat for the slaveholders of the United States. Slaveholders found the northern resistance to the law intolerable in the words of the Augusta, Georgia Republican, a successful farce. It summarized the case of a fugitive named Sims, Sims was kept in court for a week, a police detachment was necessary, and the building was surrounded by a barricade of chains, and hundreds of the military had to be kept on guard to prevent his forcible rescue. Slave hunters were jailed for kidnapping and released only on bail of up to $10,000. Finally, one of the agents narrowly escaped being struck on the head by a Negro named Randolph. This conduct, complained the Republican, will prevent masters from attempting to regain their slaves. In the 1850s, slaves increasingly heard news about the rising conflicts between North and South. By 1856, slaveholders reported their slaves were excited by the birth of a Republican Party dedicated to banning slavery in the West and its presidential candidate, John Fremont. That year, slaves also learned that whites in Kansas fought in armed battles over the future of bondage. A journalist in Kansas wrote, The slaves are in a state of insurrection all over the country. Slaves in the South escaped in larger numbers than ever before, and more whites, particularly the poor, aided them and took part in slave conspiracies. Panicky talk of black insurrections was heard in several states. The Washington correspondent for the New York Weekly Tribune wrote in 1856 that the insurrectionary movement in Tennessee made more headway than is known to the public and insisted important facts were being suppressed in order to check the spread of the contagion. The next week, he told of serious outbreaks in New Orleans, though local papers carefully refrain from any mention of the facts. The New Orleans Picayune admitted it, refrained...